Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. Hey listeners, this is the part of the show where I'm supposed to tell you how excited I am about this episode, but I'm also very sad because our guest today, Tony Abbott, passed away this past weekend. Tony was such a wonderful poet, professor of English Emeritus at Davidson College, college where I graduated from, and I was privileged to spend several hours with him this summer, remotely of course, planning to record and then recording this episode with him for Charlotte Rear's podcast. We were supposed to release this on November 17th, but in honor of his memory, it's being released today. And in this episode, we talk about his life, his passion for teaching, which he describes as a spiritual experience, and his love of poetry. And not only does he read and discuss some of his favorite poems that he's written, he talks about life as if he knew this day was coming much sooner than I did. I knew he was receiving treatments, but he had such a vital quality to his voice and uh, such an upbeat attitude that I I had no idea that he would leave us so soon. I'm really glad I got the chance to be with him, and I'm glad I asked him how he felt about being inducted in the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame and how he wanted to be remembered as a writer and how it was for him as the poet to wrestle with the angel in his poetry book, the angel dialogues, uh, what might be waiting for him on the other side. Since taking on this project called Charlotte's Podcast, it hadn't occurred to me that someone I interviewed might die before their episode came out. But taking this kind of hard, it, it's, a, it's a reminder that we're all here on this earth for such a short period of time. And yet, as I went back over the last few days and listened to this interview, my sadness was mixed with inspiration. Inspiration that I feel from the example that he set the life that he lived, and the way he continued to write, even to the end. He told me, and you'll hear this in this episode, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you are able to write. And he also said, Landis, do it now, do it now, do it now, before it's too late. Thank you, Tony, for sharing your wonderful poetry and your words of wisdom with me and the world Here's the interview as it was slated to release before I learned 
the news. I hope you enjoy this episode in honor of Anthony Tony Abbott. In today's episode, we meet award-winning Davidson, North Carolina poet and novelist uh, Anthony Tony Abbott, 2020 inductee into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame, an organization which celebrates and promotes the state's rich literary heritage by commemorating its leading authors and encouraging the continued flourishing of great literature. Tony talks with us today about his writing life and reads poetry from three of his award-winning chapbooks published by Lorimer Press, New and Selected Poems, If Words Could Save Us, and the Angel Dialogues. Of the Angel Dialogues, Joseph Pathanti, Poet Laureate of North Carolina 2012, says that Abbott miters each poem into the next with the precision of a master carpenter in language that moves seamlessly, often floating from Impressionism into a quirky vernacular narrative. And Kathy Smith Bowers, Poet Laureate of North Carolina 2010-2012, says, This angel is a double-tasking, sarcastic, Yeats-reading, quantum-leaping trickster. Tony starts the show reading a poem that is one of his signature pieces, The Girl in the Yellow Raincoat. The girl in the yellow raincoat waits on the sidewalk outside my window. The flower in her hair is wet. She stands very still, her eyes focused upward on some object I cannot see. She does not move, but she smiles slightly. Perhaps she plays the cello, and she is humming Bartok silently, making the bow ripple with her tongue against her teeth. Or maybe she waits for a bus to take her to her lover, or she has read a letter from Paris or Istanbul, and she smells coffee and chestnuts steam roasted, and she hears in the cobbled streets the cries of vendors under the aged curves of bridges. Perhaps she's just a girl standing in the rain by a stone bench in the early morning while the street shines. It is nothing, you argue. Then why do I weep? And why are there splinters in my palm? And why do I stand here long, long after she is gone? Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. Oh, and speaking of audiobooks, and now that uh, it's already November and Christmas is around the corner, I'd like to uh, let you know that my three books in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy are now uh, on audiobooks, and you can find all three wherever you like to get your audiobooks, and also at Libro.fm. I'm really excited about the fact that I connected uh, with uh, an actor in uh, L.A. who is the narrator for this series. His name is uh, Bill A. Jones. He's best known for 
uh, his role as Rod Remington from Fox TV's Glee. But he's also appeared in a number of other uh, shows, Days of Our Lives, The King of Queens, The Drew Carey Show, and much, much more. He's really a funny guy, and he's uh, he's a singer as well. And he does justice to this series, this across between my cousin Denny and Miracle on 34th Street. You can listen to all three audiobooks uh, wherever you like to get your audiobooks, or you can get the first ebook uh, for free by signing up for our email list or pretty much on any retail site now. And the uh, other two books, if you want to listen on audiobook, you get uh, those two for the price of one if you join Libra.fm with that promo code Charlotte Reader, all one word. With that said, I've got a little bit more about the author and then the interview, more readings, uh, and the writing life segment. So hope you enjoy. Winner of the 2015 North Carolina Award for Literature from the state of North Carolina, uh, Anthony Tony Abbott is the author of seven books of poetry, two novels, and four books of literary criticism. The Angel Dialogues is the recipient of honorable mention in the 2015 Brockman Campbell Competition of the North Carolina Poetry Society, and If Words Could Save Us was co-winner in the same competition in 2012. Tony's literary honors and awards are numerous and are detailed in the show notes for this episode. He is currently the Charles A. Dana Professor of English Emeritus at Davidson College and recent inductee into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. Congratulations on being inducted into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. It's quite an honor. It's a great honor, and I, I feel it's a very special honor for me because it puts me in the group of people that I admire greatly and respect greatly. and. Uh, um, my fellow writers in North Carolina, and it's a very, very special honor for me to uh, have been selected for this this uh, induction. So how did you feel, Tony, when you first heard the news that you'd been uh, selected for this honor? I, I, I felt, I, I thought about Reynolds Price and uh, Thomas Wolfe and Lee Smith and those people who are in it, and they seem to me to be, are really great writers, and I didn't feel like I was quite in the same class as those people. So to be elected to the Hall of Fame makes me feel uh, a special part of the company of those wonderful writers, and I, and I, so I felt in my heart this was, this was, uh, Quite a remarkable honor. It is a remarkable honor. And uh, listeners, uh, let me just tell you a little bit of what we got planned today. You're in for a real treat. Uh, Tony's going to read some of his poetry today from a number of his collections. We're going to talk about those poems. Uh, and like all episodes on Charlotte's podcast, we're going to be getting into the writing life discussion uh, with Tony. And I'll be asking him questions that uh, uh, maybe he'll share some of his secrets with us. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> but first, but first, Tony, given your journey from where you started as a young boy to now uh, inductee into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame, I'd like to talk with you a bit about your life's journey. Okay, sure. uh, you 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 as a young boy, did you ever envision that one day you would be receiving this kind of honor? Well, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> I, uh, the the first uh, the the first real poems that I wrote were in the um, 1970s, 
and my career as a writer really began with my writing of a short story, which is called The Weekend. So I started writing short stories and poems when I was really um, in my in my 40s. As a child, uh, I grew up in, in, in Norwalk, Connecticut. I was born in San Francisco. I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and my mother had left my father in California and moved to Connecticut and remarried. And um, there were a series of incidents in our family which caused the family to break up. When I was nine years old, in 1944, the family literally broke up. And my mother, who had a drinking problem, moved to New York. My stepfather moved to New York. My sister, who was 18 and had just graduated from high school, moved to New York. And what do you do with a nine-year-old boy and the answer is, I had a fairy godmother. And my fairy godmother paid for my education, and I was sent to boarding school. And that became my life. My school became my home. And I was very, very, very good in school. And I went from one boarding school to another boarding school, to college, to graduate school. And I spent my whole time working on research and criticism. And I, I got a Ph.D. in English so that I could become an English teacher. So I didn't think about writing at all. I thought really about becoming a teacher and, and teaching at the college level rather than becoming a, a poet or a fiction writer. So that was really part of the second half of my life. Yeah, you, you've uh, you've written that at the age of nine, your family dissolved. That, uh... To, to put it in more dramatic terms, you, your mother shot your stepfather. Didn't kill him, you said, but it was the end of the marriage. He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer who moved to New York. Your mother went to the hospital. They sent you to boarding school. And as you wrote in the novel *Leaving Maggie Hope*, uh, you know you talk about this. Um, you s were sort of, I guess, required to grow up at a very early age. Yeah, I think that's true. I. Uh... One of the things I, I would do, I would never know where I was going to go for vacation. So I really didn't like vacations. I liked school. At school, everything was clear. If you did this, you got this reward. If you did that, you got that punishment. And you knew exactly where you stood and what was going on. But during vacation, I didn't know anything because I didn't know what to expect. So I didn't know where I was going to go. And so I had this feeling that I had to take care of myself. And, and what happened is I would often go to my stepfather's in New York. And at a very early age, I learned the New York subway system. And I could travel around as soon as they let me, as soon as I was old enough. I can't remember what age that was for them to let me. I would go from my stepfather's to my mother's to my sister's all of whom were in New York, and I would go by subway from one place to another. And I, um, so uh, I always, from a very early age, felt like I had to be able to take care of myself. Uh, and uh, that's why I'm very good at direction, because <laughs> I need to know where I am and how I'm going to get to the next place. But yeah, no, that that's true. 
that that was well before iPhones and and satellites that helped you get around. Uh, now, now, Tony, you said uh, speaking of subways and traveling and trains and that kind of thing, you said that one of the single most uh, dramatic events in your childhood involved a weekend, and you wrote a poem about it. You're going to read in just a minute, in which you earned a pass from boarding school, uh, in which you're going to go visit your mother, and you were supposed to meet her at Grand Central Station. Exactly. Yeah. What happened? Well, she wasn't there. Um, what happened, I was at a school in Massachusetts called the Fay School. I call it Lowell School in the, in the novel because Lowell is a great Massachusetts name. So I got on the train in Framingham, Massachusetts and took the train to New York because I had earned a weekend by, by doing a lot of good things. And I got, I walked up the ramp uh, outside the gate and she wasn't there. And eventually uh, what happened, uh, in, I called my sister who was living in New York and had just gotten married recently. And she sent her husband down to pick me up at Grand Central Station. And I spent the weekend with my sister and never did see my mother. Um, and uh, later she told me she never got my letter saying that I was coming. So, you know, the thing about writing is that, that you never know what the truth is, and the truth can vary depending on who tells the story. Um, I just found it a very interesting thing to me. I just found out uh, just a few years ago from my, my good friend, um, Harold Hamilton, who was uh, a fellow student at, at Fay School, that when I got back from that weekend to the school on um, the next, the Monday, one of the one of the teachers at the school took me downtown to get a milkshake. And when I was downtown getting a milkshake, he had a meeting of the whole school to talk about my weekend. And he said, this must never happen again. Because the question is, whose fault was it? Was it my mother's fault? Perhaps. Was it my fault? Perhaps. Was it the school's fault? Perhaps. Or was it we, we all share in that fault? And, uh, and so the truth is very complex. And uh, uh, in my novel, I don't deal with all those things because I didn't know that then. All I knew was that my mother didn't come. Um, so that was a very, it was a powerful and scary moment in Grand Central Station. The boy looks up at the stars in the upper concourse. Usually he is entranced by the way they make the shapes of creatures and mythic heroes hunters and bears and flying horses. But today, he has no heart for them. He has waited on the bench by gate 32 for half an hour. He has watched for his mother's blue coat with the torn hem and the white scarf she wears on rainy days. He is starting to cry and he does not like to cry at all. It scares him here among these strangers. He has called her hotel. The woman at the desk 
that she was out. Perhaps she's on her way, caught in the mad swirl of late afternoon traffic, a crush of trucks and multicolored cabs, yellow and green and checkered. Or perhaps she's on the subway, trapped by a red light between stations. He wipes his eyes with his handkerchief, and then he feels, for the first time, the icy touch of death. She will not come at all. She will never come. And he might sit on this wooden bench until he grows old, and still she will not come. She will never know how he has counted on this small good time between them, this time that will never be. He stands, puts his tears away in the pocket with his used handkerchief. At the glass booth, he will request a schedule. He will go back to school. He will collect his A's and spread them on the smooth palm of his heart. He will live. Now, Tony, what I've learned about this particular poem and what you've said about it before, particularly this line, uh, he put his tears away in his pocket and you, and with his used handkerchief, you were actually making a transition at that point in your life. Um, and yes. the last stanza of the poem talks about it to where you're going to go back. You were going to collect your A's. You're going to spread them on the smooth palm of your heart and you were going to live. And so you decided, I think, to try to put away the emotion and move forward. Exactly. I mean, I think that's, uh, 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 and, and when I, when I was uh, selected by the state with the North Carolina uh, Award in Literature, they made a five-minute video, and I talked about that in that video. Um, what I did is I said, I'm not going to be emotional. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I can't afford to. I think that it's too scary, so I have to take care of myself. So I distanced myself and applied myself. I like he collected his A's. Uh, and so I decided I would try to be the very best person I could be at school. And I did that when I went to, uh, and then I went to Kent School in Connecticut and did, did the same thing. Um, and, uh, and I went, then I went to Princeton. Then I went to, uh, Harvard Graduate School, and I got my PhD. And then we moved to Davidson in 1964. It was my second job. My, my first job was at Bates College in Maine. And so I moved to Davidson and in 1967. Uh, our daughter died very suddenly from encephalitis. And I had no way of dealing emotionally with her death because I had put my tears away in my back pocket with my used handkerchief back then. And I, I, I literally, I couldn't cry. Um, so from about 1967 to the early to mid-70s, I had to reinvent myself 
and rediscover my feelings, which I had put in my back pocket, because getting a PhD is the worst preparation possible for the writing of poetry, because there are two totally different kinds of language. You know what I mean? In other words, there's the scholarly language of research and literary criticism, but the language of poetry comes from the heart, from the soul, from the feelings. And I had to, I had to find those again. That led you to writing uh, this poem that you're well known for, The Girl in the Yellow Raincoat, which you read at the start of this show. Uh, you said it took many years for you to write that poem. It was too raw at the time that your daughter died. You couldn't write it. But talk about how, talk about how you were finally able to write this poem and what prompted you to write it. The poem, I wrote that poem when my daughter would have been 18. And I had a, a freshman writing class at Davidson College. And there was a girl in the class who uh, had lost her mother. And, and on rainy days, she wore a yellow raincoat. Uh, and I kept thinking that she is exactly the same age my daughter would have been a, a freshman that fall, and she might, had she gone to Davidson, been in that writing class. So the poem was really about my daughter rather than about the girl in the yellow raincoat. But the girl in the yellow raincoat became an image for my daughter, and I began to try to imagine what my daughter might have been like at the age of 18. Uh, and then the wonderful thing about the poem is that nothing really, nothing in the poem actually happened literally. Well, I, I wasn't staring out the window at a girl who was standing on the street uh, who might have played the cello, who might have gone to Paris and Istanbul. All of that was, I imagined, I want, I think I wanted to create, uh, the character of the girl in the yellow raincoat as a, as a, a, a model for whom my daughter might have been had she been that age. And, and uh, that was a powerful experience. Uh, and why do I stand here long, long after she is gone? And it's just because he's thinking about that loss. So, I mean, I think eventually... Uh, Poetry gives us the, the ability to find the words to talk about those things which we could otherwise not talk about. So, Tony, when you read this poem aloud, as you did earlier in the show here, is it hard? Does it bring back certain feelings? The first time I read it was at Weymouth Center, and I had to get up and read it at Weymouth. And it was very, very, very difficult. It was very, very, very emotional reading that poem then. But as the time went by, I became more and more able to read it without tearing up. And uh, so the, the answer is yes, it was a very, very difficult emotional experience reading the poem the first few times. Um, but I think time allows us to develop a greater sense of, of object, objectivity 
So, Tony, you talked about after this uh, defining moment in your life where your mother didn't show up to you wanting to get the A's and proceed. You go to Princeton, you get the PhD from Harvard, you teach at Bates for three years, you come to Davidson College. Uh, in 1964, I was actually at Davidson from 1975 to 1979, but uh, I didn't, somehow or other, I, I didn't end up in your class. So I'm looking at a picture of you under a tree at Davidson here. It's on your, uh, it's, I think it's in that uh, video that you it's talked in that about. Video, yeah. 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 And and you've got about six students sitting around you. You're on the quad. Uh, we're looking at a young Tony Abbott here uh, leaning over. And uh, I'm just thinking, how did I miss that class? And uh, what made you go outside? What'd you do outside? Well, students always wanted to have class outside. <laughs> as soon as the weather got nice, they would always say, can we go outside? And the, you know, the answer to the question was, if you said no, they would think you were kind of an old funny-duddy. So, you know, if you wanted to be, have a sense of identi identification with the student, you had to go outside when it was nice. And uh, the classes outside were never as good as the classes inside, because, but they were very pleasant. They were lovely, you know, but they were, they were, there were lots of distractions. Yeah. You know, well, and, uh, but it was, a, especially in the spring, it was a tradition to, to go outside for uncertain days. And uh, so, so I usually did. Well, that's great. Uh, and I want to just say to the listeners, too, that that video, which is on your website, uh, there's a link to it in the show notes for this episode. It really is worth watching. Um, you can uh, hear a little bit about Tony's life and um, some of the things that he's done. So I commend that to you. Tony, let's let's read a couple more poems before the break here. Let's uh okay. let, let's go to a, a small thing like a breath and uh you can uh, set that up and and read sure. it whenever you're ready. Um the name of my second book is A Small Thing Like a Breath. And that's the, the title poem and it says for James and Robert uh and they are my twin grandsons. And they were born in 1990. So I, I wrote this, this poem for them. Uh, and in the poem, there's only one, one baby. Cause I didn't need two babies in the poem, but they were twins and they were born. And I remember going up to, uh, Durham uh, where my, they were born and they were at Duke Hospital and going into the neonatal intensive care and seeing them. Uh, as tiny babies. So this is uh, the context of the poem. Small thing like a breath. How cheap words are. How easy to say I love you, knowing not even the surface of the word. How easy to say I die for you, knowing not even the icy edge of death, not even his outer garment. Then you bear a child. You carry a life in the darkness of your womb for nine uneasy months. The child descends, bumping the fragile edges of its unformed skull against the walls of your pelvic bone. He enters the world wailing. For a time, the machines help him breathe. You cannot hold him because of the wires, the sensors, which monitor each vital function. And so you sit by his side and give him your finger to hold. 
and you watch his tiny, perfectly formed nails curl around you. And after many hours, you are still not tired, not finished marveling at the wonder you have created. And you know that you could, indeed, would die for this sun, this glorious, heartbreaking, selfish, beautiful sun. And every night you continue to marvel, week after week, month after month, every night before sleep, you tiptoe into his room and listen to each small breath and watch the way he seems to smile and how his eyelashes curl upward. And later, you will keep pictures. You will mark his first step and the awkward rounded shapes of his first letters. You will shout with joy for his first line drive and cry for the pink cotton sheep he makes in Sunday school on Easter. And when he hurts, you will know the very marrow of love, how pain for his pain takes you in its arms and grips like icy night. Then, when you speak of love and death, you will do so, not lightly, but with bowed head and hushed respect for a small thing like a breath. Tony, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm just thinking about how fast uh, time flies and how fleeting life is from the time that your child is first born until the, the time that they're uh, out into the world and beyond. I get a lot of I got a lot of requests. People people like to to reproduce this poem and send it to women who are pregnant with it. And that that one seems to mean a lot to people. Uh, and it's kind of fun in the sense that since uh, to write about the bearing of a child, even though I'm uh, a male and not a female. But I think one of the things poetry does is it tries to allow us to get into the the characters and the, uh, uh, the feelings of people who are different from ourselves. Um, it's like my poem, uh, which we probably will do, uh, the man who loved music, um, because I'm I'm not that man, but I feel like I can understand him and try to write from his point of view, as in this poem I write from uh, the the point of view of the woman. But all that stuff about the machines and the sensors I got from going to visit the twin the twins in the neonatal intensive care unit uh, up at, up at Duke. So. Uh, Thank you for asking me to read that. Yeah, thank you for reading it. So, uh, listeners, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we are going to hear that poem that uh, that Tony mentioned, uh, The Man Who Loved Music. It's it's a wonderful piece, uh, very moving. We're also going to talk about the uh, Angel Dialogues, which is an interesting book uh, about uh, an angel that yeah. uh, that befriends the, <laughs> the poet and uh, sort of gives the poet a, a hard time, and we've got a great poem from that. We're going to do the Writing Life segment. We've got one final piece, too, so uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books 
They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Tony Abbott. He is the 2020 inductee into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. We're talking uh, about his life, about his poetry, uh, we've got more poetry in this episode today uh, from this very talented uh, writer. Uh, Tony, you've got this piece uh, that you alluded to before the break. It's called The Man Who Loved Music. Uh, talk about that uh, poem and what inspired that. It was about 9-11. Um, I remember going to New York and going to the hospital on 14th Street where uh, many, many of the people who were injured in 9-11 in were, were taken care of. And on the walls of the hospital were these posters with pictures of the missing people where the people, relatives and friends of the missing, were asking if anybody knew anything about them. And I was very moved by seeing those pictures. Um, and they appear in the they appear in the poem. And I read the story about this musician from Juilliard, and I was so moved by his story, I wanted to tell his story. Um, this is in a book called The Man Who. 
And every poem in that book begins with the word, the man who, either in the title. So, for example, in this poem, it begins, the man who loved music. And the first line is, carried his violin to the armory. So the title becomes, has the word, the man who. So every title has the word, starts with the man who. And what I'm trying to do in that book is to, to have all kinds of different men who. And so there, this is a book I want to get away from just writing about myself and writing about other people uh, who I find interesting and, and broadening my, my poem from being merely autobiographical to uh, uh, expressing my, my, my response to the wider world around me. The man who loved music carried his violin to the armory near Ground Zero. He was from Juilliard, where music was his life, where playing better than the next musician was more important than food, more important than God. On the walls of the armory, he saw posters, thousands of posters, the faces of the missing smiling at him, they were all young. Maria Ramirez looked out from her graduation robe. He saw the face of Angela Susan Perez from the 101st floor of Tower B. He saw Joe Visciano and Carol Rabelais and Paul Ortiz Jr. holding his baby. How, how could music help in a time like this, he wondered, as he walked with his violin into the huge central room. He and his two friends played for hours. When his friends could play no more, he played alone. He played for the grief counselors, for firemen and cops who came in to rest, and for the soldiers of the fighting 69. He played Bach and Tchaikovsky. He played Dvorak and Vivaldi, the theme from Schindler's List and memory from Cat. For the soldiers who had been in the pit, he played Amazing Grace. And then at midnight, he played the national anthem as the 300 men of the 69th stood and saluted an invisible flag. His hands trembled as he placed his violin and his bow back in the black case. The colonel walked him into the dark street where dust still thickened the air and faces of the missing still smiled against the night. He would walk home and the blisters on his hands would be his remembrance. Tony, that is a particularly moving piece. Uh, you certainly uh, you certainly did justice to the moment. Uh, you can really picture this person uh, uh, not knowing what to do, but to share his music and uh, uh, I think that, that, that the key in the poem is where he says he was from Juilliard where music was his life or playing better than the next musician is more important than food more important than God and at the end of the poem he's a different person because he realizes that 
playing better than the next musician is not the most important thing. And he's learned to be uh, a, a deeply compassionate human being because he played. And, and, this, and I'm sure that his life was changed by that. I don't know, because I don't know him. I've never met him. And the, the, you know, part of what I wrote is imagined by me and part of it. Like all the names of the, uh, the missing are real names. Those are the pictures that I saw, uh, and, uh, the pictures that he saw. So the, the, uh, everything in the poem, I think really happened. Yeah, that's great. So, Tony, we're going to shift now to uh, to angels and maybe demons as well. But uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, and and you've got this book. It's called The Angel Dialogues. You've got you got a lot of praise for it. I mentioned it at the outset of the show. Um, it's a really interesting uh, book because it starts out. Um, it's it's almost as if the poet is having a conversation uh, with him or herself. And yet there yeah. is some, someone else present and it, it's, it's an angel who is, I don't know, maybe holding the poet in check or making the poet uh, uh, trying to keep the poet on the right track, but uh, doing it in a very sarcastic uh, way. Um, you, I mean, you start, you, you start out the book and, and, and the poet is like, you know, who are you? And the angel says, well, I'm your angel. Yeah. Like my angel. Yes, your very own. And then uh, the poet's like, wait a minute, you know, how, how can this be? And, and, and the, the angel laughs, well, don't ask how I just am. That's all. Yeah. And the poet's like, well, that's a lot. I mean, come on. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, right away, the angel's saying, don't ask these kind of questions, just be in my presence right. and let's have a conversation. You go through this book and you have a lot of different conversations and and we're going to have you're going to read a poem where the angel speaks of death but the angel doesn't just talk about death the angel talks about lots of issues that are on the mind of the poet and i'm wondering what was going on in your life um at the time that you decided to write about uh, an angel with sort of a uh prescient view of of life and the afterlife yeah i think that um when people say who's the model for the angel and I, I usually say me. In other words, a uh, very famous Christophe uh, uh, Flaubert said, uh, who is Madame Bovary? And he said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. And uh, I think with the angel, what I'm allowed to do is have a dialogue with myself, the poet side of myself and the angel side. And the angel is supposed to know things that the poet doesn't know. And my pro the interesting thing about writing the, the 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 book was that I couldn't I couldn't have the angel tell the poet things that I didn't know or I couldn't know. Uh, so if the if the poet asks the angel, "Is there life after death?" the angel can't answer that question. The angel can suggest an answer, uh, but so, but what the, the angel wants the poet to be a better person. The angel's aim all the way through the book 
is to make the poet um, uh, uh, more more of a, a a human being who who loves everybody. The angel keeps telling the poet that his his main job is is to love everybody. And the poet, the problem with the poet is that he's in love with the angel, and he loves the angel, but he's not very good at loving everybody. Um, there's a wonderful little poem called uh, uh, The Angel Speaks of Beauty. It says, what do you say to people who feel they are beautiful? I love you, she says. I know you do. No, silly, you tell the unbeautiful ones you love them. But suppose you don't. Suppose their ugliness puts you off. Get over it. All the more reason to love them. But if you can't, you can. If you can't, then what am I doing here? Don't you see, darling? Don't you see why I'm here? Look at me, sweetheart. Now just go love everyone like that. And then they'll be beautiful just like I am. And that's a, that's really an important poem in the book because the, the angel is always we're, we're, we're sent angels. There are lots of human beings who serve the function as angels for us. And, and I think during this, we've heard a lot during this COVID-19 pandemic about people who have served as angels for others. All the healthcare workers are sort of serving as angels for us. An angel is someone who is, is going to help us to be uh, a more complete human being. And that doesn't mean they have to be serious all the time because the angel, you know, she, she has a good time with her life. You said a minute ago that uh, you don't say anything in these poems that the poet doesn't know. And yet you have a poem called The Angel Speaks of Heaven. And it's an interesting, yeah. interesting poem because the poet is asking the questions about heaven um, and the angel we, answers sarcastically. And the angel answers sarcastically. We sing hymns and flap our wings, and the poet is like, "What wings? You know, the wings you earn, like in that movie, everyone yeah. watches at Christmas." And you, yeah, I take care of people like you. I wrestle. I make announcements. Yeah. And the poet's like, "In heaven, you just sing." And the poet, I mean, the angels, yes, uh, pretty boring. And she says. That's what Mark Twain said. I liked him. He was a real wise ass. I know. That's great. <laughs> so, so, so you're just having a little bit of fun, and yet you're trying to weave your way into answers, right, as you're talking to yourself about some of these yeah, issues. because when, when the poet, what they really do in heaven is they listen to us and try to come and help us. So I have the angels in the angel trees. If you look at the, uh, the book, you see that they, those are the in the cover. You see the, the gold angels in the trees, and they're listening. And then they're the different angels are sent to different people to try to help them. Um, and so that's kind of the amazing that the angel arrives and the angel leaves. The angel has to leave because the angel has lots of other people to take care of besides just the poet. Um, yep. Now, now, Tony, um, did you have, I mean, is this all metaphorical or did you yourself uh, have a visitation with an angel as you were writing this? Well, no, I never had a visitation with, a, with an angel in the literal sense. But, but I, every time 
something would happen and I would just think of another angel poem. And so she was just kind of around all the time. And so, you know, I was thinking when I was playing bridge, I was thinking, what would it be like if the angel played bridge? You know, so the, uh, um, but the, no, I don't think I, I don't think I had a, a literal visitation, but I think I felt, I felt like the angel was my, my better half. I mean, you know, I think one of the nice things about poetry is that you can write in dialogue with yourself. So I feel like she's very, she's very real to me, even though I can't say that I actually met her. Well, and some might argue with you that maybe you met her in a different kind of way. Maybe she, maybe she, yes. yeah, yeah, that, you know, she appeared into your subconscious. She appeared into yeah, your, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's set up the uh, read you're going to do from the book here. Okay. It's uh, the, the angel speaks of death. So the angel speaks of death is the last poem where the angel is actually present. It's really death. She says. I wince at the word. It's really death you're afraid of. Yes, I say. Get over it, she says. We are walking in the white bark wood. She stops and turns to face me. I look into her eyes. Death's nothing, she says. That's the point, I answer. What do you mean? It's the nothing I'm afraid of. Ah, she says, go on. The absolute emptiness of it, the loss of everything, all the words, all the beautiful words, the moments, the flow of the ocean, the white majesty of the shifting stars, all saved in the mind, all swept into patterns of beauty, the flower on the bedside table after the accident, all lost, all without a mark, no mind, no words, no sight, no touch, no sense. Nice job, she says, and smiles her unearthly smile. Now do some more. Wait a minute, I say. This is a trick. You're an angel. You know about this. You must know about this. Why should I talk? Tell me, my angel. Tell me about death. Am I wrong? Oh, God, how I'd like to be wrong. I just can't get that emptiness, that nothing out of my head. We are sitting now on the bridge, our feet dangling. I don't know how we got here when we sat. I look into the water and wait. I can't tell you, she says. I'm not allowed. Not allowed? What kind of answer is that? The truth, she says. It's not part of who we are. Don't be angry, sweetheart, she says. That doesn't help. Not part of who we are, I murmur. The dogwood in the spring, she whispers, just is. It does not think about its isness. Its isness, I laugh. Where on earth did you get that? I made it up, she says. Just be, she says softly. Don't worry. Let God worry. For you. And she kisses me once on the cheek. And then the wood and the stream are gone. And I am alone 
on the dark street. Yeah, and Tony, you start out early in this book um, having a conversation with the angel, and the angel comes to the poet and says that um, she's read your poems. Yeah. And uh, and the poet says, you read my poems? She says, yeah, I watched you write them. Oh. And she says, you have to trust me. And the poet says, what? And she says, don't worry about what I know or don't know. Just trust me. And the poet says, I'm scared. And she talks about the fact that the poet is writing a lot about death. Yeah. And, and I'm just curious because you were, through these dialogues, I think, perhaps searching for some answers. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. D- d- what, so this last poem, The Angel Speaks of Death, what is your, what are, what's your thought? I've spent my whole life as a practicing Christian. Uh, I taught Sunday, I started teaching Sunday school when I was at Princeton. And I would go to a little mission church down on Route 1 uh, and teach Sunday school. And then when I went to Harvard, I taught Sunday school at Christ Church and Brattle Street in Cambridge. And then I've been teaching Sunday school at Davidson ever since I've been here. And uh, I was, uh, so I've always been a believer, but I feel like um, that, 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 that feeling that there might be nothing is always a doubt, no matter how much of a believer you are. Um, and so I voice that doubt in this poem, and I want an answer to that doubt. And as much faith as you have, the doubt is always still there. So, so either there's three answers. One is there's nothing. One is everything is good. And the third answer is some things are good and some things are bad. <laughs> so, there's the whole business of hell, heaven and hell. Um, and I think what I feel, I like when it says, uh, don't worry, let God worry for you. In other words, just be. Be a loving person. The angel tells us to be a loving person, to love everybody, especially those who are not beautiful. And you don't have to worry about that because there's nothing you can do about it. It, it is what it is. Just as the, um, you know, the dogwood in the spring doesn't think about its business, just be. Um, so I think that's probably the, the answer that the angel's trying to give him. All right. That's um, great. That's great. Let's, uh, if you if, let's do a little bit of writing life, uh, Tony. Um, sure. I, and I want to pick up here because uh, the angel um, talks about the fact that uh, she watches you write, that she is uh, sort of your muse, and uh, yeah. you take issue with that in the poem. That uh, not necessarily. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, um, do you think of your muse as uh, sort of? spiritual in nature, angelic in nature? Or, or, I mean, what do you think about the fact well, that these ideas... These... I think that, that there are... That's one aspect of the muse. I think individual people can be muses for certain periods of time. So that, that, that for example, you, I mean, you read about a poet who discovers the work of 
another poet, and that poet is so moving, that poet becomes a kind of muse for them. Or somebody that you love can become a muse, or a, 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 a friend can become a muse. And in between, when you don't, you don't have muses, you don't necessarily write. You don't feel moved to write. Uh, I've got a lot of muse poems all the way through my poetry. In 1993, we, I, got, I was on sabbatical, and we went to Turkey, Israel, Egypt, Greece, and Italy. And I was teaching humanities at Davidson, and they're the, I mean, they're the four key, five key countries of which I call the cradle of the world. And when I tra we traveled in these countries, that travel became my muse, and I wrote a lot of really really good poems about these places and about art and about things that we saw and things that we experienced. And then to me, uh, you know, the, the worst thing you can do as a poet is not to have a life. In other words, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you are able to write, and if 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 uh, uh, you know, I thought the I I thought um thought the angel was going to be my last book. It was published in 2014, and I thought I was done. I I didn't feel like it. And then then as things began to move along toward and uh, we got into this uh, COVID thing. I thought, well, you know, I've got a lot of time now. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. So I went back through all my, all my files. I went back through my computer, and I brought up every poem that I still had in my computer that I had not published. And I came up with about 90 poems that I'd written over the years. And then I, I looked at those and I sent those poems out to friends to read. And we went through them and we decided which poems should go in this new book that I'm working on now. And the theme, I realized that there's a theme that runs through the whole book, which is living the last part of your life from the time that you retire uh, until the time that you die, and how to stay fully alive, even though you may feel that your life is in many ways diminished. I mean, I think one of the things that happens is when you you move, you retire, you, you don't do as many, and your life seems to become smaller, and and you don't want to let that happen. So. Um, this is a poem about trying to find the joy and the power, even in a, the uh, diminished state uh, during the last part of our life. And I, I didn't realize I had been writing about this for the last 20 years. I mean, because basically I retired from Davidson in 2001. So I've really been retired for the last 20 years. Um, 
And so really that's what this book of poems about is about dealing with that um because I got my identity through the college and through my teaching. And um and I missed that. Tony, you mentioned uh teaching. And b- by the way, your advice uh, is well taken. Uh, I think uh, there are, there can be three chapters or four chapters or six chapters and or more in people's lives. And uh, every chapter I think is worth uh, paying attention to. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, it's, it's retirement, but it's something else perhaps uh, yes, is. Keep, keeping you engaged. But as a teacher, um, what, what drew you, I mean, I think you mentioned that you always admired your teachers when you're in school and, and you became a teacher yourself. What was it about teaching, Tony, that uh, that you got out of as a person? Because, you know, you give as a teacher, but what were you getting in return? Well, what you're, you're getting is a tremendous joy. Uh, the joy of teaching is so exuberant. I mean, good teachers just love the being in the classroom and, and, you know, to me, talking about books is really important because it's really my spiritual life. I mean, and I, the, uh, I've always been fascinated by religion and I've done a number of courses at Davidson on that, that, that take religion and literature and mix them together. I did a course on Flannery O'Connor, Frederick Buechner, and Walter Percy, all of whom are Christian writers who write comic novels. And I find I get much more out of being in the classroom with my students and talking about those novels, to me, is much more exciting than being in church. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a form of spiritual um, exercise to explore the questions that they're exploring or to me, the great novels, uh, I'm doing a course in um, Nathaniel Hawthorne this fall and The Scarlet Letter. The great novels always deal with with these profound issues. And, uh, you know, the question in, in Hawthorne is, who, what, what, who or what does Hester Prynne represent and who or what do the Puritans represent? And the excitement of exploring those issues with the students gives me great joy because you don't know what they're going to say and you have dialogue with them and the dialogue is is, is what makes the the uh, the class so 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 important so I mean I just uh, I just get a lot of a lot of pleasure from teaching yeah well you were a beloved teacher at Davidson and uh, the students really love being a part of your classes I know you've taught courses uh semester-long courses and workshops and everything on writing poetry. But can you just give us a glimpse into, uh, since I've got an inductee here into the Literary Hall of Fame, can you give us a glimpse into what uh, Tony Abbott does when he sits down to write a poem? Well, I, one of the things I do is I try not to write it down too soon. Uh, when I... When I sit down to write a poem, it's because in my head or in my heart, I know that I say, this is a poem that I have to write. Um, 
So I, I know and I carry it for sometimes maybe months at a time and sort of work on it in my head because I don't want to write it down too soon. So that when I write it down, I don't, I don't revise as much as a lot of people do. Because I've already done a lot of revising before I've actually written it down. And Lamont, she, she always talks about shitty first drafts. And I don't necessarily write shitty first drafts because my first drafts aren't really first drafts. They might be. I've gone through all sorts of, uh, and I kind of like that. I mean, I like carrying the poems around. And, and when I'm walking, I can work on the poems in my head. And sometimes I'll have certain lines that I'll, uh, I'll keep in my head for a long time. And then the poem will begin to develop and then I'll write it down. I'm, I'm a writer of shitty first drafts, <laughs> but, yeah. I, but I come back and try to fix them later. And, uh, yeah. I, I think, uh, it's great that you can, you can do that. You can keep that in your head and put out something on paper like that. I do think though, you've probably learned some, some techniques and some lessons over the years, whether it be about craft or about the psychology of writing. And I'm wondering with all your years of experience, Tony, what would you tell your younger writing self something that you have learned about yourself as a writer that if you could have imparted that knowledge to the younger Tony, it might've helped him along the way. Well, I mean, Writing is clearly a form of therapy. So writing, I mean, the first book I started to write was the book that became Leaving Maggie Hope. And I had never written about my childhood. Uh, so when I realized was, um, by the time I wrote Leaving Maggie Hope, I, um, my mother had died when I was 15, and I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't know, uh, I didn't know much of anything about my father. I didn't know much of anything about my mother. I knew very little. When I was at boarding school, there was a lot going on in New York. I didn't know much about my sister. So what what happens is that I think that now I'm I wish I knew all this stuff. I mean, I know almost nothing, and I can't find out anything about my mother's life. Now it's too late because there's nobody left that knows anything. The last person who knew anything really was my sister, and I never got that information from her. So to me, writing is a way of, of discovering the lives of other people who are very important in your life, which you would not otherwise have done. And I, what I would say to the, to the young writer is, do it now, do it now, do it now, before it's too late, because the information may not be available to you if you wait too long. So, uh, so there's two aspects to writing. One is the that's what that's technique. I'm, I'm very consciously trying to get the sound and the music of those. So poetry is not just about content. It's also about um, being able to use words in a way that, that is powerful. 
and the music of words and the right words put together uh, and things like alliteration and assonance and rhyme and, and formal poetry. You know, it's not like people think that, that you can write poetry without reading any. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be an artist if you didn't study art. Musicians study music, so, and uh, poets, I think, I think one of the things uh, I feel is important is not only the therapy of the content, but the, the skill of using the language. And that's, those are the two things I would, would emphasize. Robert Frost says, says that, um, when he says that if you, if you know what your poems are going to say, before you write them, then the, the joy of writing them is, is taken away because the writing of the poem is in itself an exploration of, of what you're, you're it's, a, it's a discovery of something rather than simply a, a repetition of something you already know. So, Tony, one last question before we have a final reading here from you. Um, you've had a long career as a writer. You're still writing, as you said. How would you like to be remembered as a writer? You know, I never know what I'm going to say until you ask the question. And that's kind of fun. As someone whose poems uh, help people to lead fuller lives, that, that whose lives were in some way changed or affected to the good by reading my poems, um, I think that, that was very important to me. So, Tony, that's great. Uh, uh, that's, that's a great insight. Uh, we have one last poem here um, that you're going to read. Um, it's called Genesis. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's nice because, it, it, you know, we've been talking about the angel dialogues, and now we're going right. to talk about, talking about uh, the world itself and, and God as a whole and that kind of thing. So um, tell us briefly what we're about to hear, and then you can read that to, to bring this to a close. Okay, that'll be great. Thank you. Uh, I think Genesis was in my my uh, third my third book, the search for uh, wonder in the cradle of the world. And Stephen and Katie are my son and daughter-in-law, and I wrote this poem for their wedding. Um, and uh, I read it I read it at their wedding, and. Uh, we printed, printed it up and put it in the frame and it's hanging in their house. And uh, I, I, I figured the only way I could figure out how to make this point work was to have two gods, one feminine and one masculine. So, uh, Genesis. The swinging lord, that master maker of cool chords, shifted in his empty heaven and said, I need me some music. So the sky was full of music, and he declared that it was good. And then the equally androgynous Lord said to herself, I need some light to fill the fragrant fingers of the night. So the water shone with light, and she declared that it was good. And when the light and the music played together, the stars wept for the beauty of it. And the swinging, singing Lord said, I need me some people to praise this thing that I have made. And the Lord thought long and long about what sort of people 
might be the purest praisers, what sort of people might truly see the light. And he made man with his cunning brain, and he made the zebras and the elk and the swift-running antelope for man to wonder at. And she made woman with her imagining mind and her long, limber, dancing legs and her eyes that saw the color and the light. And when the man and woman had been crafted, the Lord declared that it was good. And the man heard the light in the woman's eyes, and the woman saw the music in the man's mind. And the music was the silky manes of violins, and the light was like the laughter of clarinets and the glitter of guitars. And the man and the woman moved to the measure of the music, and swayed to the gold and amber brilliance of the light, and they knew that the sound was neither his nor hers, nor like anything that ever was before. And the Lord saw what they had made, and behold, it was very good. Um, Tony, that's that's wonderful, and and in fact, this episode is been very good as well. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your your life story, to, to read some of your poetry. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. I enjoy being with you, and it's been it's always a pleasure to read my poetry and talk about it, and a pleasure to be working with you. So thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.